So we live in a time of deconstruction in Western societies. People talk regularly about how they are deconstructing religious beliefs or dismantling the patriarchy or tearing down traditional norms. But what exactly are we building? After all, isn't that really the big question we all need to grapple with? I for one am far less concerned with what people are tearing down and more interested in what they are proposing to rebuild in its place. It has shown me something that has transformed the entire way that I think about the work of the church. It's something so much bigger. It's a work which I believe is the greatest possible work one can be involved in. It's something that I call the vision of Zion, and it is the cause to which I quite literally have gladly and entirely given my entire life to. So what is this vision? Well, for many people, they think of Christianity in terms of something personal. You know, we be good, and if we are good enough, we go to heaven, or in Mormon think, you go to some higher level of heaven or something like that. And while that's not necessarily wrong, it's not the vision of Zion. The vision of Zion isn't just something personal. It's about all of us. It's about the creation of an ideal society. It's about the creation of right relationship, not just with ourselves and God, but our interpersonal relationships as well. And this spans all the way from a marriage to the greatest complexities of geopolitics. Imagine for a moment that a person has put themselves right with God. This is a wonderful thing. This is where Zion begins, but it is not where it ends. God does not want us merely to exist in right relationship with him, but also with each other. In fact, he commands it, and there is an order and a pattern to our relationships with one another. That is the great doctrine of the Restoration. It's the doctrine that we are very much in this together, and we are working to seal one another together as a human family in properly ordered relationships. In Zion, I make myself right with God, but the next and most important relationship is the one that I have with my wife, then my children, then my extended family, then in greater community and nation and world. It also is absolutely critical to remember that there is a hierarchy here that should drive our life's priorities. President McKay reminded parents again in 1964 that no other success can compensate for failure in the home. And in 1995, the prophets of our day called upon all the world to strengthen the family as a fundamental unit of society. Do you see how this is an inside-out approach? President Ezra Taft Benson described an important pattern the Redeemer employs in bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. He said, quote, The Lord works from the inside out. The world works from the outside in. The world would take people out of the slums. Christ takes the slums out of people, and then they take themselves out of the slums. The world would mold men by changing their environment. Christ changes men, who then change their environment. The world would shape human behavior, but Christ can change human nature." Close quote. Covenants and priesthood ordinances are central 
in the ongoing process of spiritual rebirth and transformation. They are the means whereby the Lord works with each of us from the inside out. Are you starting to see how Zion works? It's a focus on transforming people rather than systems. James Madison once said that if men were angels, there would be no need for government. As a consequence, self-discipline has eroded, and societies are left to try to maintain order and civility by compulsion. The lack of internal control by individuals breeds external control by governments. Policemen and laws can never replace customs, traditions, and moral values as a means for regulating human behavior. At best, the police and criminal justice system are the last desperate line of defense for a civilized society. Our increased reliance on laws to regulate behavior is a measure of how uncivilized we've become. So do you see what's going on here? The world is trying to work from the outside in. It's trying to get the systems right. It uses force and coercion and the law to try and get people to behave. But no system is sufficient when people's hearts are not right. This truth was understood by people like John Adams. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break through the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. You can't make a good society from people who are deeply ill in their souls and full of selfishness, deceit, laziness, and hatred. In fact, it is because people fail to live harmoniously, voluntarily, that we then have to resort to the creation of laws and systems based on force. On the other hand, if people transform one by one into people of industry, kindness, generosity, intelligence, courage, honesty, etc., government and external systems become increasingly irrelevant, and the emerging order and harmony is what we call Zion. And there were no envyings, nor strifes, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lyings, nor murders, nor any manner of lasciviousness, and surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. There were no robbers, nor murderers, neither were there Lamanites, nor any manner of ites. But they were in one, the children of Christ, and heirs to the kingdom of God. And how blessed were they! For the Lord did bless them in all their doings. And there were no contentions and disputations among them, and every man did deal justly one with another and they had all things in common among them. Therefore, there were not rich and poor, bond and free, but they were all made free and partakers of the heavenly gift. Just think about it. Imagine if everyone lived the laws of the gospel. Would you need extensive laws and police and militaries? Would you have rampant crime and poverty? You see, Zion is not a society with the perfectly engineered government welfare system. It's a society where people are so full of industry and love that when an occasional person faces an inability to provide for themselves, there are countless hands voluntarily reaching out to help empower someone back to self-reliance. 
Now, obviously, the idea of the entire world of people living in this way is a utopian dream, and we live in a fallen world. But is it possible to approach Zion? Is it possible for us to get a little bit closer to Zion than we are now? And what is the limit to that? How close can a group of people get to Zion? You see, we have all experienced more or less Zion in our families. We have seen how beautiful it can be when relationships are right. We have been in wards or stakes that are closer or farther from Zion. We have been in nations that are closer or farther from Zion. Zion is something we have all seen in any group of any size as they harmonize together voluntarily out of love. The act of putting yourself into this harmonious order with God and your fellow man is repentance. Zion emerges as we take responsibility for joining into this order that somewhere deep down we know that we need to align with. The resulting effects of being in harmonious relationships are the most soul-enriching and meaningful things possible in the human experience. It is literally what makes life worth living. (laughs) It's funny that less than a year after making that video, Jordan Peterson delivered the following opening speech at a conference in London. There's a biblical story, another biblical story featuring Abraham. And Abraham... Abraham is born into what you might describe as the, as the socialist utopia. Abraham is, has everything he wants at hand. He, he's of, his parents are well off, his, his, his tribal group is flourishing. Abraham has no reason to move out into the world and to do everything, to do anything. He has everything he needs at hand. If his needs are construed, let's say, as the needs of an infant who's dependent and needs merely to be satiated. And Abraham hears the voice of his ancestors, right? The voice of God as he hears it. And the voice says, leave your comfort. Leave your comfort. Leave your family. Leave your tribe. Leave what you know. Move out into the world. Why? Because you could have the glorious adventure of your life instead of the infantile satiation that has encompassed you. And then you might say, well, how do you have the glorious adventure of your life? And I would say that you discover that in responsibility. And I would say further that that's not something that we have been communicating well for decades. We're torn apart with concerns about identity and what does identity mean. And we insist at every moment that our identity is to be found in the instantaneous gratification of every possible hedonistic whim, knowing full well that a pathway that's marked out by nothing but that self-serving hedonism is destined to despair and catastrophic failure. And we say at the same time that, like God himself said to Moses, I am only what I say I am, and I can define myself completely. The ultimate extension of a narcissistic liberalism. Well, what's a responsible response to that? Take responsibility for yourself. Why? Because in bearing that noble burden, you'll find the 
self-regard that sustains you through catastrophe. And if you can take care of yourself, well, maybe you can dare to offer your hand to someone else, to your wife or to your husband, and you can say, we can join together and as a unit, we can be stronger and more responsible than either of us could be apart. And then if you're careful and awake and you take on the responsibility, you can manage that. And then if you can do that, maybe you can dare to bring children into the world. And you can say, well, we can weld our family together and we can make of our local environment a place of productivity and harmony and generosity. And if we can develop expertise in that, that will be a meaningful adventure. And then maybe we can extend a hand beyond that to our local community, to our neighborhood, to our town, to our city, to our nation, to our nation under God. And we can serve at every one of those levels of hierarchical responsibility. And in doing that, we find the adventure of our life. We find the meaning that sustains us through catastrophe. And we simultaneously protect ourselves from being the aimless slaves who do nothing but wander blindly in the desert and from the tyrants who would like to govern every single action we take. If each of us did everything we could do and needed to do, we would have no need for a king. Seriously, is he watching my videos? I mean, I, I literally like said the same thing. We're sovereign citizens. We have responsibility for our own destinies. If we take that on, there's nothing we can't do. We organize ourselves properly, we aim at the truth, we, we, we interact with each other as reliable, productive, and generous individuals. We engage in the proper sacrificial service that enables the community, and we tilt the world towards heaven and away from hell. He is literally describing how you build the kingdom of God. Do you see what he's talking about? He is describing how our modern world tells us we are God when we're not. He explains how adopting responsibility for our actions and repenting, essentially, and aligning ourselves with the truth is the pathway not only to personal fulfillment, but to social transformation from the inside out. Many people are calling his final speech at this conference the best speech he has ever given. And frankly, I might agree with them. And it plays on this exact same sort of thing. It plays on the idea that the meaningful life is not found in looking at fulfilling our whims, but rather in building the kingdom of God. You know, we have so many people in the world who are lost in ways that are almost unimaginable with their absolutely fragmented identities and they have no meaning in their life and they have no meaning in their life because strangely enough the meaning in your life doesn't emerge as a consequence of your pursuit of your proximal hedonic subjective narrow purely self-serving goals and drives there's nothing in that that's nourishing and there's nothing in that that's nourishing in part because unless you can integrate yourself across a large time span, taking care of who you will be in the future, and simultaneously fulfilling your social obligations in a responsible manner, the, none, none of the 
nothing within the subsidiary structure can operate properly, much less you claim the right to the gratification of your hedonic desires. That's a non-starter. And even if you could do that, you wouldn't find in that the meaning that would sustain you in times of trouble. You find the meaning that, and everyone knows this, you find the meaning that sustains you in trouble when you need, for example, to regard yourself with some some positive attitude in the midst of your stupidity and your suffering and you can see in yourself the fact that well at least you were in service to your wife at least you had been useful to your children at least you helped take care of your parents at least you were of some service to your friends or to your customers to your business associates to your nation you find that meaning in service and that service is in service of that harmony that makes up the entire Jacob's Ladder that stretches from earth to heaven, and it's always been that way. And we offer our children thin gruel as a replacement for that magnificent version of multi-dimensional harmony, responsibility, and beauty. And there's more to it than that, too. You know, I read the book, the, 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 the biblical book that details out the life of Abraham, and I mentioned this when the conference opened, and Abraham begins his life with all his proximal hedonic needs satiated. And the voice of God comes to him and says, go out into the world, get away from what's merely infantile and satiating, and have the adventure of your life. And that's a good bargain, because we're built not for mere proximal infantile satiation of our base desires, but to move out into the world like the adventurers that we are and to face the complexities of the catastrophic future with a certain degree of nobility and courage and to hoist the world on our shoulders and to struggle uphill. And it's in that struggle that the meaning of life emerges. If you lived your life completely, maybe it would justify itself, right? If you could, and where would you find the meaning that justifies the suffering in life? And the answer to that is, well, you find it in the burden of responsibility, because the burden of responsibility isn't a burden, it's the greatest opportunity you could possibly have. And you know perfectly well when you're trying to decide if your own life is worth having, that if someone comes up to you even once and says, you know, what you did for me, it really mattered. And that might get you through like a week of rough times, just the mere fact that it was obvious that the sacrifices that you made in relationship to others actually made a difference. And you can make a continual difference in your life if you adopt the proper sacrificial attitude, right? And it's the sacrificial attitude that makes the hierarchy of identity possible because what you do with the proper sacrifice is continually sacrifice the lower to the higher. You continually, you sacrifice your own self-serving proximal hedonic whims to a pattern of being that sustains you across the long run and that unites more and more people. And it's a worthwhile sacrifice because the payback for the sacrifice overwhelmingly what would you say is overwhelmingly disproportionate to the cost and everyone who's had a child who has any sense who's escaped from their primordial narcissism understands this because bringing a child into the world and watching that person develop is a bittersweet adventure because children are fragile and things go wrong but it's a very rare person whose head is set on their shoulders in anything approximating the proper manner who isn't 
thrilled to death to see the person they brought into the world thrive as a consequence of their sacrifices and to see in that thriving the justification for all the pain that was associated with their production. And so, and that's what life is like, and we don't let young people know this anymore. You know, here's something psychologists discovered in the last 20 years. There is no technical difference between thinking about yourself and being miserable. Those are the same thing. And you know that too, you know? If I'm on stage and I'm talking to you, and all of a sudden I become self-conscious, I drown in anxiety and I lose my place. Right, and that's what's happening to the young people that we see who are adrift. They're taught to be nothing but self-conscious, to do nothing but think about their immediate needs, to refer to themselves as the locus of all things, and there's nothing you could do that would make them more miserable. It's identical with the instruction in misery. And you want to be outside yourself, serving a higher purpose, and maybe you're cynical about that, but you can think about it technically. Well, why do you bring a fork to the table? Well, so that you can put a plate beside it. And why do you put a plate at the table? And it's so that you can set the table to serve your family, to share food, to bring together the people you love in something approximating harmony as a microcosm of the entire cosmic order. And you can replicate that at every level of complexity all the way up to what's at the pinnacle. And that's all real. And so is what's at the pinnacle. And we've forgotten all of that. And as a consequence of forgetting that, we've forgotten the responsibility that we need to bear in our life to make our lives bearable. And we've forgotten the meaning and the adventure and the purpose and the significance and the, and the earned self-regard that goes along with that sacrificial attitude. And we've forgotten to tell our children the same thing. And we could remember, we could remember who we are. We could remember who we are. And that's what this conference was for, to remind people, everyone who attends, who you are. And who exactly are we, Dr. Peterson? You're, you're the men and women, individuals made in the image of God, who stumble eternally uphill towards the, the, the Jerusalem on the hill, the, the shining city on the hill. Good answer. No, and we're so foolish. We regard those propositions as something approximating what primitive superstitions, when in fact they're the most brilliant intuitions into the fundamental structure of reality that have ever been offered. We've predicated our civilization on those presuppositions. And look at it. It's not so bad. We've brought wealth and plenty to billions of people around the world. We've been struggling uphill properly. And if we were wise and faithful and courageous and responsible, we could continue to spread that to everyone. We could eradicate absolute poverty. We could bring about a time of abundance and opportunity. For everyone. And it kind of sounds like he's talking about there being no poor among them. We'll do that. We can do that if we hoist the world on our individual shoulders and operate collectively in this harmonious manner and continue the struggle uphill toward the city of God. And that's the truth. That's the truth. It's not some superstition. It's not some primitive 
defense against death anxiety. It's not the opiate of the people, right? It's the call to divine responsibility. And to the degree that each of us act that out in the confines of our own life, we do what I suggested at the beginning of this conference, which is tilt the world towards heaven and away from hell. And we're put this conference together to encourage people to do exactly that in the belief that it is, in fact, the people who can do exactly that. Not only can, but must. Any attempt to circumvent that responsibility merely brings about some, what would you say, oscillating tension between absolute tyranny and utter slavery, right? As a responsible citizen, bearing the weight of the world on your shoulders, you obliviate the necessity for the tyrant and the slave. And so that's what we want to do, and that's what we encourage all of you to do, and to leave this conference thinking deeply about what it is that you could offer to the world if you threw everything that you had into it, because life is a very difficult proposition, and you're not going to be the glorious success that you could be unless you throw yourself into it utterly, wholeheartedly. Kind of sounds like we need to be completely consecrated accepting it in all its terrible expanse of catastrophe and possibility and realizing in yourself the person who has that divine responsibility along with all the rights that are attended upon that to set the world straight. My sense is that if enough of us, enough of us realize that sufficiently, there's nothing we couldn't accomplish. There's no desert we couldn't make bloom. There's no reason for zero-sum Malthusian pessimism. Right? We could have what we wanted if we truly wanted it, if we truly sought for it, if we truly asked for it. It would make itself manifest as a consequence of our faith and our responsibility, the adoption of our proper identity. So you see, many people just don't understand how glorious this vision of building the kingdom of God is, but I kind of feel like Dr. Peterson is starting to see it.